Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Each year, a committee of USU Honors students selects one Honors Outstanding Professor whom they invite to deliver an imagined last lecture, a talk that shares wisdom and insight with students and community members, as if it were the professor's final chance to lecture at USU. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the 2022 Honors Outstanding Professor, Dr. David Brown, gave the uh, 47th Annual Honors Last Lecture on the USU campus. His lecture was entitled, Our Sixth Sense, Math. Uh, Dr. David Brown is a professor of mathematics and statistics at Utah State University, and he joins us now in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, talking with us. A couple of years ago, we talked about uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Right? You, we're, we're sitting right where we're sitting right now. Um, and that, that was an interesting conversation. Um, I want to get a little bit of your background before we jump in, into this. Um, grew up in Colorado? Yes, grew up in Colorado, uh, close to Denver, mm-hmm. um, and let's see, uh, asthmatic kid, kind of sickly. Uh, at some point, uh, I realized I needed to uh, not be so sickly. Not exactly sure how I pulled it off, but uh, kind of turned myself into kind of a quasi-athlete, then a bodybuilder. Uh, I was a competitive bodybuilder until I was 21, uh, almost turned uh, pro uh, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, and then uh, somewhere in there, I found my way into uh, graduate school and wound up in a PhD program and then got a PhD. And suddenly, before I knew it, I was employed here at uh, Utah State University. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, so I want to just uh, do a follow up on bodybuilding. It's not often I meet a bodybuilder. What, uh, what drew you to bodybuilding? Uh, well, I wasn't a fan of competitive sports after trying a couple of them. Uh, not not sure why. Maybe because I was um, nerdy and introverted or something like that. But um, I, I really liked lifting weights. And uh, my uh, my grandparents had a weight set in their basement, so I used it frequently and just kind of enjoyed the time by myself and uh, just that experience. And then one thing led to another and in a gym and soon people are telling me that I should compete. And so I did. And, um, I don't know, was somewhat successful at it. And, uh, then I realized I didn't really need the competitions to motivate me to do it. So I stopped doing those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, your undergrad is mathematics and philosophy. Correct. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, we don't often associate those two. Yeah, we, we should though. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I found the combination to be quite uh, rewarding. Um, so I found that my mathematics classes were the most challenging for me. Uh, other classes seemed to be. Um, no offense to any other professors listening, but it seemed like a lot of memorization. And if I could memorize well, then I would do very well in the class. And uh, I I liked mathematics because um, I had these acute moments of veneration for the subject that just kept occurring. Uh, So I stuck with it. And then um, I read a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that kind of put philosophy at the top of the academic pyramid. So decided that, well, I guess I better major in philosophy. And then I found that it seemed like philosophers were uh, trying to make their systems as mathematical as possible. Mm -hmm. So their, their arguments definitely were following the strictures of logic and as, as someone who is studying mathematics and dealing with the, the problem solving and having had a little bit of uh, logic in, in my background, I felt like I did fairly well in the philosophy classes. And I certainly enjoyed it. It was much more of a colorful experience than my math classes. Um, 
So uh, I just wanted to, to throw this out at you, um, and, and we're we're going to be arriving there later in the hour uh, because that's what you do in your in your lecture. I noticed I pull up the notes from our last conversation from a couple of years ago. We talked about artificial intelligence. Some of these th- same themes appear in your last lecture. Um, uh, for example, um, you asked the question, "Why is math in the College of Science?" Yeah, that, that's a question I've I've. Um well, I understand why it's in the College of Science. Uh, I have reasons for it that are kind of on a conspiracy theory level sort of thing. Um, for one thing, I think it was in the College of the Arts. Uh, math would suffer just like the arts does. But being in the College of Science, uh, we can prop ourselves up by uh, allowing uh, the discipline to be something of, uh, you know, uh, the... It's, it's leverage for either classes. You know, you have to know mathematics to do well in physics, to do engineering, and so on and so forth. So um, I guess um, it also kind of, I don't know, I guess it feels more science-y to people. Although the, the practices in mathematics are nothing like those of a scientist. So um, it, it, it doesn't belong there if what makes it, if, if what allows you to be in the College of Science is the mode in which you your discipline is performed. Mathematics doesn't belong there. Mm-hmm. And um, in the in my last lecture, I, I gave evidence to why it's more more of an art. It's definitely some kind of art form, um, possibly even a religion, uh, as opposed to a science. Mm-hmm. Um, you say in your last lecture, and this is I'm jumping ahead to the to kind of the end of the lecture. You say uh, what we trained ourselves to do, and certainly our students is we're, we're preparing them for the next math class and then preparing them for the next class after that. Uh, we're, we're not necessarily teaching them, I guess, the, in the way that, that you think we ought to do. Uh, correct, yeah. So if, if every class you take is for the next one, then as someone who has to suffer mathematics to a point, you know, it's like, it's as though you just have to take some mathematics and then you stop at some strange seemingly arbitrarily po- arbitrary point. Um, and we can alleviate that by changing the names of classes a little bit. But, you know, like, for example, our, our college algebra class, it's uh, designed uh, pretty, pretty strongly to prepare you for calculus. But if you're not going to take calculus, then what do you need that preparation for? Um, you, when, when I construct a class, if I have the opportunity to do it and the freedom to do it, um, still operating within the constraints that are imposed upon me by, you know, the rest of the curriculum that follows, I try and give students an experience that pushes them far past the class. Uh, For example, uh, in my discrete math class, I try and bring some issues that they would uncover only in a topology class, which they might never take because they're not math majors. But there's no reason to hide that sort of subject from them until they take that class. So um, I, I don't I don't agree with the idea that if you've never heard if you haven't heard enough prerequisites, then you can't experience some mathematics. Uh, I, I think it's totally feasible to to hand someone a small amount of new definitions, which we always have to learn, and then incorporate them into into the curriculum as soon as you as soon as soon as possible. In mm. your lecture, you. Uh you bring up a question I think maybe every student who, who's ever had a math class asks. And so mathematicians are prepared with answers for this, right? When will I ever use this? <laughs> yeah, I, I, have, uh, I don't have that many answers for that. So I, I know that I use it every day or something like that. Um, so 
you know, as, as I study mathematics, I've never really been, um, I haven't been fixated on whether it's got an application or not. Uh, I just find it kind of beautiful, I guess. But every time I do run across a place where mathematics is used, it sometimes is very surprising. So, um, and I'm hoping that students, as they take their math classes, if their professors are, you know, um, adroitly educated and have been paying attention to how mathematics is used, have surprising answers for them because there, there are always some surprising answers for, for just about any mathematics. But setting those aside, there's, um, again, uh, like the, the veneration that I experienced as a mathematics student, I'm, I'm guessing they will experience that as well. And I, I remember the first time I asked that question, it wasn't in, in a class, like, what is this used for? And I, I was um, made to feel really stupid. It was not a teacher that told it to me. It was a, it was a, it was a father of a friend of mine. And so I made some quip about how algebra is weird and worthless and blah, blah. And I was parroting it. I, you know, I heard other kids say that and people like to ask it almost like it was a way out, you know, potentially. So if we ask this question and we stump the teacher, maybe we won't have to proceed anymore. Well, they'll realize, oh, hey, I don't know. You know, never mind. Let's go have recess. Anyway, that never happened. So this, um, my friend's dad just made me feel like an idiot for ever asking the question. Oddly, I appreciate that answer. <laughs> so I, I was kind of happy to feel stupid for asking it. Um, and I, I confess I might go that route when, when students ask me that question, if they ever do. But it's very rare for some reason. Uh, maybe it's because I'm in, this is a college and I'm teaching at a university and, and I guess students have kind of made their choices and they accept that the math class they're in has some sort of utility. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's because I threaten them yeah right but right. i don't know <laughs> that's uh, that's often effective i guess you know <laughs> just, you you probably as every professor gets just parenthetically uh uh is this going to be on the test right uh oh definitely professor's yes. favorite yep. question yeah yep yep um or is this important right or, right you know, is this particular day or this particular concept important well well no this is you know right now it's not yet anyway so yep. uh, <laughs> i was just talking through a k-12 through teacher who who <laughs> uh, the student uh, tells her uh, uh i gotta be gone tomorrow we'll be we'll be talking about anything important tomorrow and uh you know she she tells them or is tempted to tell them well no we're just all gonna sit there you know <laughs> tomorrow while you're gone right you know, anyway I digress. Um, so you talk about uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of math. This is this is not yours, right? To tell tell us about this. So yeah, many um, many people have observed the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics uh, well enough to decide to write a paper about it. Uh, so going back going back to the. Uh, about the 50s, I think, there was a, a Nobel laureate physicist. And then um, later, about 10 or 20 years later, I can't remember exactly, um, the paper uh, with the same title, you know, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics, uh, was revisited by an engineer, like a very well-known, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, Hamming is a household name if you're an engineer, uh, responsible for a, a great number of technological advances and 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 some uh, fairly substantial mathematics and coding theory and anyway, um, and then again, uh, somewhat more recently, um, the question is uh, brought up again, and I guess the 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 third paper that I read with with that title gave an attempt at answering the question. You know, like well. Uh, 
why is it so effective? Well, let me, let me try and give you an answer for, for why that is. I don't know if, um, uh, that, that third paper did the job, but, um, uh, I, I guess the point is that people keep revisiting this, you know, why is mathematics so unreasonably effective? And for me, and the motivation behind the last lecture is, uh, why is it that whenever I offer to explain how mathematics is useful, people are so ready to hear it? Like, you know, well, man, all that suffering I, I went through, is it, is, was it really worth anything? I hope you can make some kind of connection. It's like maybe they have this old antique laying around and they don't know what it's for. And I'm about to tell them what it's, it's greatly effective. Oh, so fantastic. This college algebra that I took. So, so you mean I can use it for something? And uh, I don't know. So, so I decided to look at why is that? Why are, why are people so kind of, I guess, disappointed with their mathematics experience? And um, so I took a look at mathematics. Um, anyway, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself too, I think. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so you go into a definition of mathematics. That's harder than you might Harder than it might appear, right? No one has ever given an adequate definition of mathematics, yeah. as far as I can tell. And as that's my evidence for that is in the three papers that I that I mentioned that uh, speak to the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Uh, each author attempts to give a definition. The third author um, does so in a in a very careful and academic way, and basically says, "Well, look, I'm not going to answer." what mathematics is because it's kind of hard to do that. And uh, that author decides to talk about the different philosophies that, that drive mathematics or maybe maybe beliefs would be better uh, because the method of mathematics is, is somewhat flexible. You know, you, you can be scientific at a time. You can be totally creative at a time. Uh, some, some mathematicians seem like they are just nothing but inspired and their ideas come from out of nowhere. Uh, other, other mathematicians seem to get their inspiration from, I don't know, sort of trolling around in the muck and mire of details. Um, so the, some get their uh, inspiration from experimentation, possibly computers that give them tons and tons of data, and then they try and sift through that and see where the patterns are, if there are any. And then maybe those patterns give uh, some sort of potential theory. But I tried to define mathematics in a way that makes sense to me, and that is instead of you know talking about what you think mathematics is or whether it's created or discovered or blah, blah, which, by the way, seems like a stupid question to me because it doesn't really matter, I decided to look at, well, what is mathematics, and I'm going to define it based on what is done. So mathematics is as mathematicians do. And so that's how I answered the question. And when I looked into how it's done, I came up with some, I don't know, I guess answers that I tried to focus on how pejorative they were, you know, like um, uh, it's a doctrine with, uh, with dogmas, you know, so, so like a religion, maybe I can say there's some sort of kind of faith-based apparatus behind mathematics. There is, you know, uh, there's definitely appeal to authority. There, there, are, there are classes of mathematicians. A strange hierarchy exists in mathematics that you don't know about until, until later. But you start to realize like, oh, yeah, there are the cool kids in mathematics. And then there's some other mathematics that's kind of looked down upon and so on. So there's all these interesting social dynamics almost in, in, in mathematics. 
Then there's the way it's done, and it's definitely more like an art form than a science, because as I just indicated, you're, as a mathematician, your methods may be very unscientific. You know, so I, I don't necessarily entertain a null hypothesis and do experiments to see whether I can discharge it or not. And where I get the ideas to look for, for, for new things to try, you know, to try and uh, do new research in mathematics. Um, I, I can't even say if I have a method and where, where the inspiration for the new things comes from, I, I'm not sure. I wish I did know because then maybe I'd have a little bit better control over it. You, uh, you, you did a, a kind of funny bit in your in your lecture, uh, talking about how, uh, truth is established in, uh, and this goes to your math as a religion, right? Yes. T- tell it, tell us how a theorem is proved. Uh, it has to, or certified, I guess is the, <laughs> is the key, right? Nice. I like that. Yeah. It, it is, it does seem like it is certified by, by the mathematical community. And, uh, yeah. So in, in, in my last lecture I have, um, and this is not the only example uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not too proud to say that there are results that there's at least one result that I've published that is wrong. And, uh, but the proof made it by the referees. Um, I, I gave an example of, of a result that is correct, but the proof was wrong in my, uh, presentation that, that was mine. Um, but again, that was, uh, that was, my example of me appeasing a referee who wanted the proof presented in a certain way that was more uh, uh, similar to, to what you'd expect to see uh, in a journal, which is kind of like an, an analytic proof. So you, you use the strictures of logic and um, you deduce one thing after another. And um, one of my favorite metaphors for how mathematical proofs are done are kind of like crossing a river on rocks. So you start at one shore and you see a rock you can step to, you step onto it. If it's, um, if it's sturdy, then perhaps you can step onto the next rock. If that first rock wasn't sturdy, meaning wasn't logically sound, then you can't make much progress. So eventually you, uh, or hopefully you make it to the other shore. And then you, you write about these rocks that you stepped on to get to the next shore, and that's your proof. So initially, the, the proof for this, this result was basically a, a display of a bunch of data. And um, it was all the data there was. It was uh, uh, kind of a substantial number of cases, although by some standards, you know, nothing. There was about 63 cases that were just one by one laid out, and they wanted to present it in a different way. So we did. But another example I gave um, is, is more, um, it's more acute and, and cute because one paper is titled, you know, a blah is a glop. So some mathematical object is this other mathematical object or has a certain property. And then the next issue of the journal, the first paper is a blah is not a glop. So completely shutting down or saying this paper that you just published in your last volume is wrong. And here's a counterexample. So somehow the first paper made it through, and it is a reputable journal. So, you know, uh, mathematicians and academics in particular like to kind of rank their journals. And if you publish in one, well, then uh, that might be good or bad, depending on the readership and so on and so forth. Maybe the editorial board or something. Uh, uh, Maybe my editorialization would say whether the cool kids are on the editorial board or not uh, determines how prestigious your journal is. Anyway, this is a prestigious journal. It is. Uh, these days at least. So, um, so there's an example of the certification process, you know, where, you know, human beings are looking at these proofs, you know, so did this person cross the river uh, validly or did they 
cheat somehow? Did they miss a step? Did they actually never make it to the other bank? Who knows? I mean, whatever metaphor you want to use there. Uh, so they believe they did cross uh, the river. But then uh, another mathematician who was paying attention, I guess, decided, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe this. Uh, and here is a counterexample. And it wasn't a very large one. Like it wouldn't have taken a long time for a specialist to discover this counterexample, in, in my opinion. So yeah, uh, certification. That's a that's a good phrase for it. Your 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 mathematics is certified by the mathematical community. But we kind of like to think of it as though we're appealing to some sort of uh, divine, I don't know, process, and that is um, logical deduction. And ideally, it is it is flawless. But we are we have only language to communicate these ideas in. So it's it's probably gonna not go the way we think it should go every once in a while. So as illustrated there, you know, there's a lot of human drama here, right? Um, math is growing, you said in your lecture. Uh, that's kind of you know, counter to what a, a lot of uh, us might think. Math is math, right? It's There's only a certain set of truth, and then that's it. But, but math is growing. There are frontiers, right? There's problems out there. Uh, so a lot of that drama, and we'll get to you think that uh, math is poetry, right? That's uh, one one thing that you <laughs> that you say in your uh, uh, in your lecture. All of that I think is lost on most students. Most students are coming in, uh, you know, and being taught I got to prove this, you know, I got to solve this problem, and I got to get through this class, and uh, and then I'm going to wash the dust of mathematics off my hands forever, right? Right. So how do we change that, I guess? How do we change that? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, if, if, if I have an answer to that, then I hope I'm executing that, that solution. And uh, as I indicated earlier, when I design my classes, if I have the freedom to do so, so I guess that kind of means if it's a class that's far enough away from those that are that are numbered in the one thousands, and there's another interesting thing, right? Our classes are presented in this in this way, this hierarchy. You know, it's like you get you get belts or something in 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 a martial art. Well, you know, your 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 belt is what number class you're, you're in, because that number indicates that you've been through all the smaller numbers to get up to that point. But I think that it might be we might be well served as a community um, if we instead of trying to carefully walk someone across that river on these rocks of, you know, one prerequisite after another, maybe toss them across or put them on a helicopter and fly them away to a high peak, uh, introduce them to, to a subject that only a specialized topologist would, would experience or, or, or a geometer, a uh, differential geometer might, might, might deal with. Obviously, the, the technicalities will be difficult if they're there, but I find that quite a bit of mathematics can be um, expressed or communicated to you know, someone who is not, uh, not an expert in, in it, if they want to hear it. Um, so may, maybe that's the answer, is just to kind of show people that there are, that there are connections uh, between mathematics and, um, and what they're experiencing, especially you know, things that they would call art, you know, just kind of colloquially, like... Um, but also, um, the, the, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics and how, how frequently it appears in our world 
tells me that we really have no idea. And I, and what if it's the case that if we start teaching mathematics in a different way, inspiring creativity as opposed to careful, you know, deduction in our thinking, if we inspire creativity in, in, in mathematics, maybe the mathematical sciences or whatever you want to call it, the discipline will grow even faster and we'll, we'll see more places and more uses for it. Uh, we're overdue for a break. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk more with David Brown. He is professor of mathematics and statistics. He was selected as the 2022 Honors Outstanding Professor, and he gave recently the 47th Annual Honors Last Lecture. Uh, his lecture was entitled, Our Sixth Sense, Math. And we'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're uh, talking with uh, this year's Honors Outstanding Professor, Dr. David Brown, Professor of Mathematics and Statistics at USU. Uh, when you're selected as the Honors Outstanding Professor, you're asked to give a last lecture. This is uh, uh, imagining the, what if you had the last opportunity to talk to students at Utah State University, share your wisdom and insight, and uh, that, that uh, lecture was recently given on the USU campus. We'll, uh, on our website, give a link to that lecture uh, as well. Dr. David Brown, Professor of Mathematics and Statistics, is our guest uh, for the hour uh, here. So uh, the title of your lecture, uh, The Sixth Sense, Math is the Sixth Sense. This, I understand, is, is this Darwin, did you say? Yeah, Dar Darwin and as far as I know, Darwin was the first person to, I can't say he argued that, but he definitely, um, he, he was quoted as saying that mathematics is our sixth sense. And um, yeah, that, I've been kind of unpacking that quote for, for many years, it turns out. So um, I'm not sure if um, it's, it was all, it was made all that clear in my, in my last lecture, mm. but that was because I felt that, um, it wasn't as important as, as the points I tried to make, which was more so, why, why is there such a need to justify mathematics when it is a sixth sense? Like, so to me, it's just, it's, it's not something I even almost, it's almost like I don't even care to argue the point anymore. And uh, I've, I've had more than one person uh, uh, talk to me about the last lecture, which is, which is neat. And, uh, you know, a couple of them have said, well, so you never really convinced me that math is our sixth sense. And, and my retort was somewhat flippant. And it was like, well, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. uh, what I wanted to convince you of more is that mathematics has uh, facets uh, that are alienating. And um, that we kind of need to pay attention to those things. Uh, so as a mathematician, as a teacher, I, I want to be aware of those things to the best of my ability. Uh, I want to make sure that students are more um, welcome into the discipline of mathematics and that they have a better experience as they study mathematics and hopefully are maybe inspired to pursue the discipline on their own, you know, to go look into things that won't be in any class. Uh, so, so the most interesting things that, that I have experienced in mathematics never came from a class uh, because, frankly, the classes were kind of boring because they were designed to get you ready for the next one to a large extent. Um, when I kind of had the, the freedom to research as a Ph.D. student, that's when things became really exciting. Mm. And there are quite a few topics that um, I, I found that my, my colleagues don't, don't know much about. For example, uh, Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorem. That, that's something that I feel like is 
such a monumental achievement in, in, in logic and mathematics, but, but few people know about it because it doesn't really help you get the job done. So if, if you're an applied mathematician trying to solve problems that people want to know the answer to, then uh, you, know, you don't have time to worry about whether your system is incomplete or not or what consequences that has. Uh, or what philosophical ramifications that has, or what religious ramifications that has. But I think it has some. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, that, that mathematics is a sixth sense could be, maybe I should fine-tune my arguments a little bit more so that, um, you know, teachers of, of K-12 that, that are, I think their, their job might be to refine that sixth sense. So, you know, can you, can you multiply quickly? Can you do mental calculations? Because, um, you know, if you can, mathematics becomes easier. You know, so some, of, some of the best mathematicians I know are really good mental calculators. Most of them aren't. Mm-hmm. So, so they're not really correlated. Like the ability to do calculations in your head is not really correlated to, to being a good and successful mathematician. But it can't hurt. I don't think anyone is disappointed in their abilities to calculate if they can. Like, you know, no one is feeling like their mental space was wasted on this ability to, to, to multiply a couple of modestly sized numbers together or whatever. But it, to me, it's sort of like, you know, as a musician refines their hearing, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm trying to do that now. Like I can't tell the difference between notes because I'm, I'm not a trained musician, but I hope my, my sense is refined or I'm able to do that. So th- this to me is how mathematics gets refined as you study it. So these, this ability you have to see or to hear, um, you, uh, you enhance that ability as the years go by. You start to distinguish colors and so on. Mathematics seems to grow the same way on a, on a fundamental level, on a basic level. Then ideally, you start to uh, augment it drastically with interesting ideas like those of topology or those of graph theory or set theory. And then so it takes that sixth sense and just throws it into a completely new dimension, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and your abilities to, to think are, are changed, um, hopefully for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I want to have you uh, talk a little bit more about this connection between philosophy and, and mathematics. We don't often think about that. But uh, some of the people you did discuss in your lecture, I know as philosophers, Leibniz, Descartes, Hobbes, um, Russell. Uh, the the I know them as philosophers, but uh, they they all uh, they all were important in math. Yeah, and and, and you know I, maybe Russell is the is the most uh, contemporary, although not not all that contemporary, um, but. Uh, yeah, it seems like there was a time when being a mathematician or, or anything meant that you were a philosopher as well, you know, so I, I, uh, perhaps that's just changed. But um, it is interesting, uh, and I'm glad you pointed that out, that, that a lot of these names are also associated with, with their philosophies. Um, Descartes, for example, you know, supposedly proved that he existed, and so and he, he toyed with these things, you know, these, these existence ideas and and uh, Russell um, was uh, fascinated with um, the philosophy of mathematics and, and believed strongly that, that he could and should reduce all of mathematics to, to logic, um, apparently coming from a time when, when logic was, was venerated. You know, it was, it was maybe the, the, the 
paradigm example of how to think correctly. And if our mathematics is supposed to be this ideal way to, to think correctly, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a characteristic that anyone who tries to define mathematics will or should include in their definition. It's, it's this something, some ability, some, some characteristic within mathematics that allows us to make long chains of deduction, uh, chain being a metaphor there, you know, so one, you think of, you start at thought A and you arrive at thought Z, which seems to be completely disconnected with A, that's, that's, uh, and you do it correctly, that's, that's like a, a mathematical type of idea, I think. So, um, so it makes sense to me that, that people that were regarded as philosophers who are toying with the ideas of do we exist, is there a God, blah, blah, stuff like that, um, that they're involved in mathematics as well. So um, maybe, maybe it's disappointing uh, or, or sad or lamentable that um, like thinking philosophically and being mathematically inclined are not intertwined like they, they used to be to an extent. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Kurt Gödel incompleteness uh, theorem uh, uh, do I have this right I'd oversimplified that uh, his I guess his theory is it's okay to be incomplete it's okay to not to not have it completely nailed down yeah it's 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 more than okay it's unavoidable okay <laughs> and, and uh, yeah so what that says philosophically is incredibly interesting to me because um as I learned uh, from uh, a biography uh, about uh, Kurt Gödel and, and in particular what led him to do the work that he did, uh, he was apparently involved with, and by involved, the, the story is that he just kind of hung out around uh, these more contemporary philosophers, like we're talking 30s, um, that would hang around uh, the Vienna Circle, I think is what their their group became known as. Um uh, I'll, I'll forget the details there, but whatever it was, it, 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 the, the, the story conjures up ideas of philosophers hanging out in a coffee shop having very, very heated debates about what's right and what's wrong, where ethics comes from, uh, where our morals comes from, where justice is, stuff like that. And at, there was a time when there were some crises in mathematics um, that uh, led mathematicians to start re-examining the foundations of mathematics, which you know was largely believed to be logic. So these crises in which essentially deduction or, or, or contradictions were deduced, and by deduced I mean the the, the process of deduction was certified. <laughs> so um, somebody proves in quotes that one equals zero. Well, that's not right, but you know the process they got there would have been certified. So this made uh, mathematicians take pause and re-examine the foundations of mathematics. And that re-examination was paralleled in, you know, moral philosophy. Like, well, if there's no absolute, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, if there's no God, then how do we know what's right or wrong and so on and so forth. So apparently Kurt Gödel was participating by listening very carefully to these debates. And then he, uh, like, like, it seems like he just said, okay, well, all right, I'm going to go home and prove that this argument is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And, and what he did was prove that in any system that's reasonably robust, uh, to be more precise, it's any system that supports arithmetic, there will, be, there will be inconsistencies. There will be statements that you cannot prove that are true and statements that are false that you cannot show to be false. Mm-hmm. And, and that for um, people that believe that mathematics is discovered – 
is very mm, poignant. So uh, Kurt is almost saying like, yes, there will be true statements out there that we'll just have to kind of stumble upon. We will not be able to deduce them. We will not build them. We won't be able to train a computer to find them. Hmm. Anyway. And uh, I mean, that's what happens in other fields of science, right? Um, you know, uh, discovery penicillin, accidental, you know, that, that kind of thing. More accepted in other fields. But this, this seems like verging on heresy in, in mathematics, doesn't it? Or, or is this accepted, Gurdjieff's uh, theorem? Well, it, 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 it's definitely accepted and, and, and lauded as one of the more, more beautiful tactics. You know, like uh, what, what he did was, I don't know, ingenious is putting it lightly. But the, um, well, I don't know, I have, I have a lot of thoughts coming together at once about uh, what, what his implications have as far as mathematics and um, how we go about doing it. Um, so there's, um, there's a combinatorist that, that I know, maybe I shouldn't drop names here in case they'll, maybe they don't want to be mentioned. Anyway, there exists a, a computer program that, that generates mathematical facts based on some very slick, uh, calculations that, that kind of go back to Euler and a mathematician more recent named Ramanujan, um, and this, this computer uses their techniques and, and basically develops what, probably will become theorems. Um, maybe not. So Ramanujan was famous for developing the, these outlandish <clears throat> relationships between typically fascinating constants like pi and e, and he gave some some crazy formulas about where they come from. I, I, I display one such formula in, uh, in my last lecture as a slide um, and, and ask you know the audience, how does it make you feel? And it's a very intimidating equation. And uh, apparently mathematicians were asked, you know, how does this equation make you feel? And it didn't make them feel as good as, as a much more basic equation there. But, but the Ramanujan-style equation had a bunch of utility behind it. For example, the ability to calculate pi very quickly to millions of digits of accuracy, very, very quickly. Anyway, so if there is this mechanism that just kind of plops these facts down into our laps, um, shouldn't we kind of pay more attention to that? to that, that computer program that is essentially generating mathematical truths that mathematicians then try and certify. You know, so if, um, so, so if the machine generates this beautiful-looking equation, uh, but we can't find a way to prove it, you know, is, is that, that might be the first piece of evidence of one of Gödel's sort of, you know, the, the, these, these statements must exist, but we're never going to know when we have one, right, by its definition. So maybe some people like to say that maybe uh, Goldbach's conjecture, which is very simple conjecture, simply stated conjecture in number theory, people have been trying to prove it for a very long time. Um, maybe that's one of these theorems that, uh, these facts that Gödel has promised us, that it is true, but we will be unable to prove it. So, so there's, there is a bit of, of, there are heretics in the mathematical community that essentially they're using computers in ways that the certification process doesn't have a way to, to accept. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't recognize these things, that these, the, this kind of small subset of mathematicians is essentially promising, well, well, just wait. I mean, we have these computers, they're not going anywhere, and we need to think of them as colleagues as opposed to these tools that we use. And if we program them to do certain things, 
then if we program them correctly, then they can give us truths that we maybe would never come to. Mm-hmm. That's um, I, you could call that messy, right? That's it's it's that's messier than we teach, right? We we teach that math is, or we get the idea as students that math is static, it's sterile. Uh, you know, it, it works for these particular functions. Just learn these functions, and and off you go. Of course, that's what you're arguing against. Yeah, uh, I, <clears throat> I, I. I can see the utility in selling mathematics as a discipline that's black and white. You're right or wrong. There's no questioning. It's you know that that's there's there's something about that. And you know uh, the, the these moments of veneration that I had when studying mathematics, which led me to you know major in it and ultimately pursue a PhD in it. Um, yeah, th- th- that was part of veneration. But what was more fascinating is its flexibility, is where you had room to be creative and to just insert something that's just kind of outlandish or, or unexpected. Um, I-, I wish there were, there were more experiences of people. Uh, I wish there were more experience for students to explain themselves as to do a calculation. Um, so, um, you know, there's, there's, my experience with calculations is that they can be done almost unconsciously. And in fact, it seems like many classes are training students to get that ability. So I plop a function in front of you, you compute its derivative quickly. Um, I plop a couple of numbers in front of you, you write down their, their product quickly. You know, or you fill in a table with these, with numbers that, and it's a multiplication table. Um, so almost getting like these, these processes that are, that are pretty, that at one point have a high cognitive demand to, to reduce them down to some sort of memorization or, or muscle memory, to use a metaphor, an athlete metaphor. But uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't see as many opportunities for, for, for students to engage what we maybe ought to call like mathematical thinking, like uh, a, a long chain of, of thoughts that are, that are held together carefully. Um, and you conclude something like that, that is, that's what the philosophers did. You know, this, these are, these were very interesting people. And, you know, if they, if they couldn't make their discipline, that is philosophy mathematical, they really did their best at it. Like, so you can't just throw in an opinion and there, there's my philosophy, right? You have to support it in some way. And, you know, the more mathematical that your, your argument for that, that philosophy is, the more accepted it would be to the philosophical community. So philosophical arguments are, were also, are also certified in, in a sense. And what, what I wish we would do more in math classes is, is encourage students to, to carry out longer chains of, of thought processes. You know, start with, you know, maybe some simple properties and, and deduce what, what has to happen. Um, and there are, there are plenty of opportunities out there to do that, plenty of disciplines that are, that are uh, conducive to that, like um, graph theory for for example, that's a that's a topic that I uh, am teaching right now, or or I don't know whatever I do is whatever I do in the classroom. I don't know if I'm teaching anybody anything, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm forcing students to deal with problems in graph theory, mm-hmm. thinking forcing them to to make deductions that start with some simple ideas, and then wind up proving something possibly surprising about a structure that is that is um, you know one that they weren't familiar with a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take another break. Uh, we go back. We'll have a final segment with uh, David Brown. He is professor of mathematics and statistics. He's the 2022 honors outstanding professor, and he recently gave the 47th annual honors last lecture on the USU campus. More following this. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with David Brown. He is the 2022 Honors Outstanding Professor at USU, and he gave the 47th Annual Honors Last Lecture on the USU campus recently. It's titled, Our Sixth Sense, Math. I want to conclude this uh, conversation, then get into uh, some of the good and the bad of artificial intelligence. We had a, a conversation about three years ago, and I would like to update that as, uh, at the end of this program. So I guess one, one last question on, on, uh, on mathematics, and especially how we teach mathematics. Um, you say in your lecture that um, students, we encourage our students, and, and you say you do this, we, we as teachers we do this, that uh, you know you're faced with a problem and you go searching in the past for what worked before, but what we ought to be encouraging is use your current creativity to to face this problem. Yes, I I, I definitely believe that happens, and uh, the reason that that students have and um, and and I guess my training as a mathematical student has the same sort of. Uh, well, well, has had the same uh, effect on me. Uh, oftentimes, when I see a problem, I start to try and remember uh, a solution for it. And even if it's a brand new problem, I will start to kind of think about, you know, the similarities it has to to problems I've solved before. And I guess that's a reasonably effective strategy for for solving a problem. But um, when when students understand more of the epistemology of mathematics, you know, the, the how do we know things um, in mathematics. I, I think they're, they will be more able to solve new problems. Uh, so I, I've had incredibly bright and, and highly performing undergraduate students have had the opportunity to work with these. And with, without any exception, I, I talked to each one of them in a clandestine sort of interview to find out, like, how did you get where you are? You know, th- these are students that stand out among the others uh, in their abilities. And, you know, with, with the ones I'm thinking of, I've, I've published papers with them. I've, I've published more papers with undergraduate students than I have graduate students. And the, uh, the undergraduates that, that are capable in mathematics, without fail, they all tell me that at some point they realized, basically what they say is how math works. I realize that math is this system that's built on axioms and definitions that you construct other facts from those things. And one student told me in particular about how he scored exceptionally well on some, you know, standardized test. And it was during that test that he had that revelation and uh, he achieved at levels that were unexplainable on, on that exam. Basically, from his perspective, was I just simply realized that within every problem statement, there was enough information to extract the solution. And I don't, I don't know if that's like a, sometimes I call that math by psychology. You know, if you're in chapter 10 and chapter 10 is on differentiation and you're looking at the, uh, the, the set of exercises at the end of chapter, well, you're probably going to need to take some derivatives, you know, so that's a math by psychology. But what, what he was saying that, no, there, there was a little bit more to it than that. Like there were terms used, there were, there were things that were defined, and I just ferreted out where those definitions lead me. And that's apparently how he did so well on this standardized test. I forget which one it was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I got him a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship to USU. Yeah, yeah so. that's wonderful. Uh, well, we'll have the, that uh, last lecture, the video of that, up on our website. Uh, I want to just have about three minutes left in the conversation. Um, so you gave a presentation in 2019. We talked about it on this program 
uh, for the Science Unwrapped uh, series. Um, trying to pull this up here. Yeah. The title of this, Artificial Intelligence, Too Late to Stop the Robot Apocalypse? Question mark. Um, I think one of the one of your main arguments was I, I I think you do not come down on the alarmist side so much as uh, this is a net positive. Uh, give me your two minute uh, spiel on on that. <laughs> yeah, we're, so definitely the the uh, the alarmist perspective I think is ill informed and it's it's science fiction. Uh, I I don't think we, artificial intelligence is not doing a great job in the sense of. Uh, making machines that play chess the way humans play chess, drive cars the way humans drive cars. Um, but it does do well at using computers to do what they do best, which is process data and uh, search vast quantities of data looking for the right things. These are what machines are, are really good at. And I think the pursuit of artificial intelligence is um, is going to lead to more more effective, more useful programs uh, um, for solving problems like cancer, for example, or or I don't know, uh, uh, civil engineering probably will be informed by artificial intelligence programs that maybe go to design city streets. Um, but then the other aspect of artificial intelligence that I like a lot that I get the most out of, cause I'm, I, I'm not fond of technology or computers, maybe ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like it's, um, how it forces us to, if we, if we try to get a computer to do something well, the way that a human does, then we have to understand the way a human does something. And that's a, that's a nice, rich subject in cognitive science. So trying to figure out how do humans play chess? Uh, how do we think? Um, these sorts of things have, uh, artificial intelligence has occasionally found answers, you know, like kind of in a corridor or before the other community that actually studies that problem on the face of it, you know, like psychology or, or cognitive science. So some interesting answers to, to cognitive science questions have been found by artificial intelligence researchers because they're trying to make a better and smarter computer program. Well, we'll uh, perhaps revisit that on another occasion. Uh, that That is reassuring to hear, to hear that because you do hear a lot of alarmist uh, you know, uh, talk. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Dr. David Brown. He's professor of mathematics and statistics. He gave the 47th annual honors last lecture. Um, on the USU campus recently. It's titled Our Sixth Sense Math, and we'll have the, the uh, link to the video up on our website, upr.org. Uh, David Brown, thanks for coming in again. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.